Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. I'm your host, Erika Cole, known as the church attorney. Starting with the question, what does it mean to be in compliance as a church? So this is a question I've had the opportunity to ponder from almost every angle, given my 24 years of experience in representing churches and faith-based organizations. As I said, this is the only practice area I have focused on for my entire career. And I think there are very few attorneys who can say that. I also have the unique and beautiful blessing that I have built a book of business that has sustained me from all various practices. So when I was a solo to when I worked for a boutique size firm to when I was a an equity partner at a 200-person law firm. So the fact that God has allowed me to serve in this way for 24 years is just a testament to one his grace, and to the incredible need um, that the body of Christ has in this area. And so no matter what your church's needs are, having a foundation of compliance is critical as government scrutiny continues to increase. So when we talk about comply, right, comply is to follow the instructions, to follow the, the prescribed course. It is a process of following a prescribed course. And it can be difficult, obviously, to comply with something when you don't know what the rules and regulations are. And that's the hole that I'm trusting I'll be able to help you fill as we walk through this discussion today. So whether we're talking about issues of cultural shifts and their effects on churches and or need to know information about the everyday operation of a ministry, the legal issues impacting churches and organizations aren't going away. It is interesting that even just yesterday, there was some information that was put out in the county where where my business operates, and they were willing to provide training for different businesses. And it's very interesting. Their questionnaire asks some of the exact specific questions that I'm going to be training you on today. So whether you are looking for maybe hoping to get grants or other government resources, or whether you're looking to buy or sell property, or whether you might be considering what succession plan would look like, or whether you're hiring a new employee. I mean, the foundation of church compliance is critical. So I'm going to jump in and give you these top six compliance areas. And I would encourage you to 
use this presentation to be a little bit of a checklist for how your church is functioning right now. So we're going to start with federal compliance. And this is probably the compliance area that most people think of under the federal compliance. Um, of course, we have three systems of government, three different branches of government. And on the federal side, one of the branches that stands out most is the courts, the federal courts. And the top level of the federal courts is the court of last resort or the Supreme Court, right? And so if there is a law that comes down from the Supreme Court, we know that that applies to across the board. So there have been rulings from the Supreme Court that directly apply to churches. And I have to say, recent rulings, um, there have been a number of recent rulings that have been very favorable. For example, what we are finding that in this current court is that the court is very um, inclined to ensure that there is not this interference, this government interference against the, or that would be harmful to the operation of church. Having said that, we saw during COVID times, not to say it's not COVID times now, but you understand during the, during the time of lockdowns and things of that nature, there were a number of churches that felt that it was harmful to comply with the COVID regulations. And those cases have now since matriculated through the court, including the Supreme Court. And what we found the court to say time after time is that as long as the law is applied equally to every, every area of operation and it's not disproportionately harmful to churches, then it is not an infraction for governments to pursue what is health, safety, and welfare. So having said that, the counterpart is that churches also had to follow the rules of the shutdown and things of that nature. So when we consider federal compliance, we're looking at the court system as one of the top areas that provide us with those compliance instructions. One of the other top areas that you would likely consider when we talk about federal compliance is the Internal Revenue Service. And the Internal Revenue Service applies the laws that come from Congress. And so in this publication, this IRS publication, it specifically indicates that Congress has enacted special tax laws that apply to churches, religious organizations, and ministers in recognition of their unique status in American society and of their rights guaranteed by the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Churches and religious organizations are generally exempt from income tax and receive other favorable treatment under the tax law. However, certain income of a church or religious organization may be subject to tax such as income from an unrelated business. So this guide is meant to help specifically churches related to tax-exempt matters and their operations. All right, now I'm going to move on and talk about state compliance. Generally speaking, we find the rules related to state compliance from state statutes. So the state statutes 
are generally provided in what's called the code um, of regulations for that particular state or the annotated code for that particular state. So I happen to be um, holding right now the annotated code of Maryland, which is, or at least one of the books for the annotated code of Maryland, they're usually put out in several you know, series. And this is where you'll find the rules related to how churches are required to operate. Now, it's been my experience that most churches want to do what's right. They want to comply with the laws, but often they're unaware of what the rules are. So it's hard to follow the rules if you don't know the rules, right? So I happen to be holding the Corporations and Associations article for the Annotated Code of Maryland, and it outlines the standard requirements so that you know for your state, what are the baseline requirements to be a director? What are the baseline requirements to form a church? What has to be in the Articles of Incorporation? What has to be in the bylaws? What number of people need to sit on the board? So on and so forth. Those things are all outlined in your state statutes. So in order to be in compliance with those state statutes, you need to be aware of those requirements and ensure that you are meeting them. Another part of the state requirements that's very common is that you, the organization will have to file annual, some states it's biannual report. Usually it's pretty simple. And in most states, churches are exempt from having to pay the filing fee. So for example, in Maryland, every legal entity that's formed in the state has to make this annual filing, which Maryland calls a personal property return. And it's $300 to file this form. Churches are exempt from having to pay that fee, but you're still required to file the form. So something to that effect generally exists um, in most states. Now we're going to go into local compliance. What might this look like? Local compliance generally requires things like um, what we would call local ordinances or the ordinance for that particular county. Now, we saw much of this play out when we were, again, going through the COVID lockdowns. There would be something from the federal level, or maybe we'd hear the president's mention, and then something on the states, the governor would say, well, you can have X number of people in the church, but you got to be masked, et cetera, et cetera. And then there were some states that didn't have that at all. And then even from that vantage point, there were also certain local provisions, right? Particularly if you were in a county where maybe the rates had spiked um, or maybe that they were getting hit harder, they may even have even more stringent requirements. So we saw that play out in real time. And that is, that's a reality for what it means to have to comply on various tiers. Local compliance for churches is often seen when you are maybe looking to purchase a facility and maybe there are certain zoning requirements. Zoning requirements, they may be on the state level, but they are most focused on the local level. I am seeing that there are even more restrictions these days from local operations about where churches can even be within the county or within a certain city. So I'm finding there are even more restrictive regulations about 
where churches can be located or certain zoning requirements around them. I've uh, assisted churches in the past in the area where maybe there is a sound ordinance and maybe a church is having an outdoor service or maybe that's even an indoor service, but the noise carries dependent upon how close the church is to other properties. So these things of local compliance are critical for you to follow. Another area that pops up often when we talk about local compliance is tax exemption. And we've talked about tax exempt status on the federal level, but there are exemptions to be considered on the local level as well. So that could be things like sales tax exemption, property tax exemption. The mere fact that a church owns a property in most jurisdictions doesn't automatically make it um, the property tax exempt. Usually the church has to actively apply for that exemption status. So again, these are some critical areas for you to consider in local compliance. Next, I want to talk about denominational compliance. This is very, very interesting. And honestly, it's probably one of one of the hottest areas that we're seeing right now in the area of church law is denominational compliance. So what exactly does that mean? So I, I have any number of these books, you know, books of discipline. I've got books of discipline. I always say I've represented churches from A to Z. So it's probably not quite A to Z, but certainly A to W. So apostolic, assemblies of God, Baptist, church of God, Kojic, all the way to Wesleyan. So I've represented denominations and um, worked with churches that are part of denominations from various walks of faith. And what they generally have in common is that they have a book of discipline that governs how they are organized and how they operate. So I'll just go through this book of discipline, for example, that you know, I'll look through their table table of contents and share what what is often there. So we see things from maybe their they'll share their history, their mission, vision, purposes, objectives, their doctrinal affirmation, right? So that we all come under the umbrella of believing the same thing. One of the critical areas that's governed is the church and its property. So you will see specific regulations around the purchase and transfer of property, property, how it's going to be deeded. They provide a sample deed for how the property is to be maintained. They address matters like what happens on mortgaging a property. So all of these things are covered and so much more when we talk about how a church that is a part of a denomination what that denominational compliance looks like. So this particular book of discipline is, you know, almost 900 pages long. So there's a lot there and there's a lot to comply with. So it's very important that organizations that um, or local churches that are affiliated with an organization understand what the requirements are and be prepared to comport with those requirements. The and other thing that I want to mention here is there's also a reference to how you know ministerial licensing and all those things come about because the goal of a denomination uh, in general is to have same faith people walk together in a notable way. What we are seeing now, which is why I said that it's an area of particular challenge, 
is because denominations are one of the, whatever the opposite of fastest growing is. So slowest, uh, they're losing churches or shedding churches at a greater rate than generally non-denominational churches. So it's really important that if there's a commitment to denominational operation, that churches really understand what that means and maybe create a plan for growth in this current challenging time. The fourth area is international compliance. So this is actually the fifth area. International compliance is complicated. Um, So it's enough that what I've sort of given you just a, a general overview, you can see that there are a lot of layers to the onion, but international compliance by its very definition means that you have to comply with laws outside of the United States or and or laws within the United States as you operate internationally. So if you are a church that has operations or maybe you have missions outside of the U.S. or some sort of humanitarian efforts outside of the U.S., it is really critical that you understand what the rules are, one, from the United States as it relates to operations outside the U.S., and number two, it's important that you understand what the regulations are within the nation that you are entering. Now, the truth is, one of the reasons why we as a church from the United States operate internationally is because it is our desire, one, to take the gospel, right, according to the word of God throughout the world. That's ultimately the point. But that also means that if we're coming from the United States, which is generally a wealthier nation, and we are going to maybe a less developed nation, the laws and the regulations may inherently be less clear where you're going, right? So again, one of the things about the U.S. is that we have a clear system of operations by and large. Um, We have clear rules by and large about what it means to operate in compliance Whereas if you go to a less developed nation, you may not be able to simply pull up a book like this and read the regulations and know exactly what the requirements are. You may not have a point of contact in this other country, an attorney who understands and can advise you specifically on these regulations. So this is what I often advise in this situation. If you're if you're a part of a church that is maybe doing outreach or a humanitarian work or missions work, and it's something that is done, you know, it's not as if you have missionaries living long term in this location, but you're going to go there on a short term operation, then I really find that it's helpful to connect with an already existing organization working in that nation. So I'll use my own experience as an example. I'm really a missionary at heart. I've always loved different cultures and travel and people. And I lived as a missionary to Latin America for almost a year after law school. And what I did is I went as a representative of another organization that already had contacts, right? 
So that way it was much easier for me to plug into other people who are already there on the ground to be able to know the ins and outs of safety considerations as well. My husband and I support the work of missionaries abroad because again, that is our passion and and commitment. So if you're going to be working internationally, I would strongly recommend that you link arms with an existing humanitarian organization, missions organization on the ground where you intend to go because navigating international waters is complex. And unfortunately, managing issues around ethics and finances internationally is not for the faint of heart. And I I think that this is a, a wise approach as you move forward. The last area of compliance is something that is particularly significant in this current time. Many churches are remaining virtual on some level that generally speaking looks like hybrid operations, right? Where they have in-person services, but they also have the ability for people to log in virtually. And that brings up a whole other area of consideration because when you are broadcasting information, that sometimes can raise issues of intellectual property, how information is shared, how broadly it's shared, the things that you may say when you're, let's say, I don't know, 50 people in a room and you and you want to mention a prayer request, that probably feels very intimate and comfortable. But when things are being broadcast and you don't really have a lot of control over who might hear and who would gain knowledge of that information, there's just a different way that you would want to operate. Another consideration around this virtual experience that we're seeing is church online. And what I mean by that is there are some churches that are now looking to form only as an online church. So they don't, there's no plan to come together in person. There is a plan to exclusively operate virtually or operate online. And so far, the Internal Revenue Service has not, to my knowledge, granted off authorization for this kind of church operation. My gut tells me that there's going to have to be some adjustment to the IRS's perspective post-COVID now that you know there's been such a shakeup. But it was the protocol and clearly indicated on the application for recognition of exemption. One of the questions, a part of the questions that's asked for churches under Schedule A is, do you have a place where you meet regularly? How many people come together? There are questions of this sort. And so while the IRS does not define the term church, it has always been in the past some assembling together as opposed to where you know, you're coming together virtually. I'm thinking that the IRS is going to have to adjust this as you can probably appreciate, technology outpaces the law all the time. So it's probably going to take a little bit of time for the law to catch up. But my gut tells me that the IRS is going to you know, need to make this adjustment in their approach in the future. The next thing I want to speak about here is church in the metaverse. 
Now, I won't pretend to be an expert in this area, but you've probably heard about the metaverse. The metaverse is an alternate online virtual existence. So just like, you know, obviously you have your human form. In the metaverse, you create your own form, right? And you do things in the metaverse. You can buy property in the metaverse. You can go shopping in the metaverse. You can do these things. And as wild as it is for probably people in my generation and and older, for the younger generation, I think the metaverse is going to be very natural. It's going to be very much like operating, you know, on social media. It's it's a it's a way of connecting with people in you know real time to some degree. And so there are churches, very small number so far, but that are beginning to open themselves to operations to being a church in the metaverse. So just like people can go to the mall or they can go to a cafe or whatever, in the metaverse, they'll be able to go to church. So that's going to be a whole other area of compliance of how, you know, what that will look like, how practical that is to manage. But these are the things that we very much see coming down the pipe. This podcast is brought to you by Church Lawn Tax and is a part of the Christianity Today podcast network. Subscribe to Church Law Podcast to get each new episode and join us on this journey. for listening to the Church Law Podcast. We invite listeners like you to submit questions and comments. Send your email with the subject line podcast question to contact at takethenextcall.com. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.